so if you've, if you've been around the last few weeks, um, you, you know we've been walking through the, the book of Daniel. Um, and I have, I have a little bit of a confession to make this morning. Um, when I knew that this job was going to entail me preaching uh, more and going through licensure and all that stuff that I would be preaching regularly, um, I'm not making this up, one of the first thoughts I had was, I hope I never have to, or at least for a long time, preach on the last chapters of Daniel. Like, that (laughs) crossed my mind. Um, And here I am, uh, Daniel chapter 8, and then next month I get to do Daniel chapter 10, so it's twice the blessing. Um, (laughs) But no, it's it's good. Uh, It's it's actually been very, very good to be walking through this book, um, and then to have this time to be able to to study into these passages. Um, And uh, I wanted to share with you, uh, sorry, I forgot to get myself prepped here. Um, You know, as I read through this chapter, there's a lot of of crazy stuff going on. You know, Anthony spoke on chapter 7 last week and uh, introduced us to the fact that um, we're talking, we've got some some different symbolism going on, um, and and there's just uh, these kind of end times type things, and and, yeah, all sorts of stuff going on that can be very confusing. And even like as I read chapter 8, you get to the end of chapter 8, and it says, like, Daniel himself was confused by this vision. And I was like, well, if Daniel doesn't get it, what am I supposed to um, do? But, but it, is, it, is, it is good. Um, and as I was, as I was reading uh, one of the commentaries, um, I was, I was uh, realizing that, you know, there's a lot of um, symbolism here. And there's a lot of different things that we can get caught up in. And, and I think too often, more times than not, we will get caught up in some of the symbolism and and lose sight of what what the meaning is. Um, so fortunately, this passage that we're looking at in Daniel chapter eight, there's actually a, an interpretation in the chapter. So we read these these symbolic things, but then at the end of the chapter, there's like an explanation uh, for it all. Um, and interestingly enough, it it actually is such an accurate. Um, interpretation is such an accurate prophecy that there are people out there that debate or question whether or not Daniel actually wrote it in the sixth century because of how it plays out so so perfectly. Um, and they're like, well, there's no way that he could have known. Well, yes, there is. We know um, these words are from God. Um, and, and like I said, even though there's a there's a pretty clear interpretation in this passage, there are still things that people get caught up in and and debate. And and I think oftentimes uh, the point often gets lost or forgotten. And so as I was reading, I was reading this commentary by Dale uh, Ralph Davis, and he opened up the chapter uh, on this chapter with this illustration of uh, this Peanuts cartoon. Um, you know, you've got Linus hanging out here on the couch reading, and apparently he's reading Romeo and Juliet, and something strikes him that he needs to take to Lucy, and he says, when Juliet asks, oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? She's not wondering where he is, Rather, she's commenting on the fact of his name being Romeo. And Lucy, kind of, this information is new to her, just says, well, now that I know that, what do I do? Um, and as I read that, I was fascinated because I didn't know that that's what was going on in Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> and I blame my upstate New York education. I don't know. Um, but I didn't know what that, that meant. That So I started looking it up. Like, I started looking up, like, what is what is going on in Romeo and Juliet? And it turns out um, this is the case. It, back then in Shakespearean times, 
uh, the word wherefore um, had more of a why uh, meaning. And, and I was like, well, that's fascinating. But then as I read on, it turns out that that causes some debate because the problem isn't his first name, it's his last name, uh, Montague. You know, we've got the Capulets and the Montagues. So the problem isn't that his name is Romeo, it's that his name is Capulet. So why is she asking, like, oh, why is your name Romeo? Um, she should be asking about his last name. And so then that opens up debate for people, and they want to say, well, well, maybe, why would Shakespeare do that? Well, well, maybe it's because it flows better in the line. Um, and then some people think, well, maybe it has even deeper meanings. And then I found out that in the original stage direction for this play, this line is delivered from the window, not from the balcony. That was added later, because apparently back in Shakespearean times, they didn't really have balconies, so it wouldn't make any sense. And as I, as I continued down this rabbit hole, I started to realize, oh no, I am doing what we are all so guilty of doing with passages like Daniel chapter 8, where I'm getting, I'm getting so caught up in the details of the illustration, I've lost the point of the illustration. I was like, oh shoot, we do that, don't we? We look at these things in the, in these passages that can be a little difficult, and we'll start to get caught up in some of the symbolism, and we'll start down these rabbit trails to the point where we forget that there's actually a point in the passage. Um, and so the point of this illustration is that, you know, we'll see in Daniel chapter 8 that Daniel's vision um, these, this prophecy that he's given isn't actually for him. He's actually told to seal it up and that it'll, it'll, it'll happen. It's, it's happening a few, uh, many years from now. And so the, the, much like Lucy, Daniel's probably sitting there thinking, well, now that I have this information, now what? What do I do with this? And, and I would reckon to say too that we as believers, um, reading this oftentimes may read something like this and say, well, okay, what is, what does it have to do with us? And so today I want to think about and focus in on, um, what is the point of Daniel chapter eight? And, and I would say, and I, I we'll talk a little bit more about this at the end, but, but I would say that Jesus, even though he's not talking specifically about Daniel chapter eight, um, in the book of John, he, he, he's sharing some troubling news with his disciples. Um, and he kind of sums it up. And I think his summing up that news also kind of gives us an idea of what the point of Daniel chapter 8 is. And that is, um, John 16, 1, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for allowing us to be able to gather here this morning. I thank you for... Um, the time of worship we were able to have to sing your praises. I thank you that we were able to hear of what Grow is doing for, for immigrants in our communities. Um, Lord, thank you even just for, for the prayer that, for, that was lifted up, Lord God. I pray that you would be glorified now. Um, Lord, open our hearts, open our minds, be with my words. I pray that um, what is shared here would just be um, helpful, Lord, that I pray you would speak to our hearts in a way that is just um, encouraging and knowing you more. And so I just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to jump right in here. We're in Daniel chapter 8. Um, and I'm going to read just the first 14 verses. So, so just follow along. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff going on, and I'll, I'll try to unpack it to the best of my abilities. Um, but, but let's jump in right here to Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. 
and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For twenty-three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So there it is. Um, cut and dry, piece of cake. Um, so, so as we know, Daniel has a vision. Um, in the last chapter, it says Daniel had a dream uh, with visions. And so I do wonder, like, if there's a little bit of a difference here, uh, because it specifically just says vision. And so I wonder if there's a little bit more of a concreteness to it. Um, and I say that because we do get some really good details that I'll, I'll point out later. Um, and, and most likely, he's envisioning himself uh, in Elam, which is, which is located between Babylon and Persia. So most likely, he's just envisioning himself there. He's not literally there. Um, and like I said, Elam is it's outside of Babylon. So he's envisioning himself in a place outside of where he, he is physically. Um, and it says that he's at the, the Ulai Canal. Um, which, you know, it's kind of reminiscent of, of Ezekiel finds himself having a vision by, by a waterway. Um, so this is not uncommon to, to God's people. Um, and so there's a lot of stuff in there. And, and what I want to do is I want to kind of just break it down and then, and then I'll unpack it a little bit. Um, and so I'm going to share with you these different symbols and where they are, but then I'll also share with you where the interpretation comes from, uh, which is in the same passage. So first we've got this ram in verse 3 through 4, and that represents the Medo-Persian Empire, right? So that just those, that empire in general is represented by this ram. Um, and we see that basically in verse verse 21. Um, and then all these horns that we hear about in verses 3, 5, 8, and 9, generally horns uh, symbolized um, military power of a nation or strength. And so every time we see these horns, um, they, are, they are symbolic of, of a military power. Um, then we've got the two horns on the ram. These represent then the actual, like, you know, Medes and, and Persians. Um, and, uh, and then we've got the goat, um, verses 5 through 8. And that, that represents a Greek king, and we're told that in, in verse 21. And so just to kind of show you what I'm talking about, I'm going to read some of this here. Verses 18 through uh, 23 says... Um, 
And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. And so we get a little more detail there. And so um, while the goat represents the kings of Greece or the nation of Greece, the first horn on the goat represents the first king of Greece, as we saw in verse 21. And then after that one's broken, we've got these four conspicuous horns in verse 8. Um, these are four kingdoms that arise, and we see that in verse 22. Um, and then we've got this little horn that grows in verses 9 through 12. And this is a bold-faced king who causes fearful destruction, which we were introduced there in verse 23. And I'll read a little more later, um, verse 24 and 25, that describes this this guy. And then um, we also have uh, this mention in verse 9 of the glorious land. Uh, most likely this is Jerusalem. This is where God's people are. Um, we've got the stars that this, this horn threw to the ground um, in verse 10. These are, we see these are God's saints in verse 24. And then uh, Prince of Hosts in verse 11 is most likely God, we see in verse 25. And then we've got 2,300 2, evenings and mornings in verse 14. There's some debate onto this, and we'll, we'll look at that in a minute. Um, so we've got all that. Uh, that's all out there. I hope you took good notes. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> It's cool, though, that we get such a thorough interpretation for this. Like, it doesn't leave us just wondering. Um, but as I mentioned, there's some debate over parts of it. Uh, you know, and, and also, like I said, because it, it so thoroughly, accurately lays out what happens between the 6th century, when Daniel writes it, all the way through the 2nd century, there's a lot of people who even question, like, whether or not Daniel could have possibly wrote this, because it is so accurate. And so, with all that said, the first king of, of Greece, um, more than likely, it's pointing towards Alexander the Great. Um, so Alexander, uh, you know, you've got this ram of, of Persia and Media, and, and, like, they're very strong, and it seems like they're inconquerable. And then all of a sudden, you've got, you know, as Daniel saw this goat come out of nowhere just really quick and really fast and just take him down, um, that's kind of what Alexander the Great did. Um, he moved swiftly and unexpectedly and spread his domination from Italy to India in a short amount of time. Um, Daniel's vision actually saw him as this goat uh, who moved across the face of the earth without even touching the ground. That's how fast he was moving. And when I read that, it made me think about, like, the old cartoons you know, where you start, they start running so fast that they're off off the ground and like, and then they go. And then I wondered, did they, did Looney Tunes steal that from Daniel? That's so cool. Um, and so, so Alexander was very powerful, uh, very, you know, exalted and conquered and did all these great things. But then he died suddenly at the age of 33, much like we saw the horn, you know, suddenly was broken. Um, and that's actually what happened. Alexander came in, did his thing, and then died at the age of 33. Um, and then we've got these four horns that pop up, right? Um, what is what is that about? Uh, well, in a, Alexander had two sons, but they were actually murdered after he died. And what ended up happening was four of his generals split the territory up amongst themselves. And uh, Dale Ralph Davis, he, he 
he puts down, you know, historically what happened was Cassander oversaw Macedonia and Greece, uh, Lysimachus was over Thrace and Asia Minor, Seleucus was over Syria and Mesopotamia, and Ptolemy was, was over Egypt. And so that's what happened historically, and here, once again, we have these four horns that have popped up after the, the one great horn, um, and that's, that's what Daniel's talking about. Uh, and then we've got this, this one odd, inconspicuous horn that pops out of one of the four horns. Um, and there is some debate. People try to, like, can apply that to different things that have happened through history. But if we're following the timeline that seems to be playing out, um, a lot of people would point this, uh, verses 23 through 25, would represent Antiochus IV. Um, and to put things into context, the, this, just in this one verse, the jump from the four horns to this new little horn is about 200 years in history. Um, and so it's believed, like I said, that, that this small horn is symbolic of Antiochus IV, who had come into power um, in the second century. And he probably came out of the uh, Seleucid line uh, where they oversaw Mesopotamia um, and Syria. And uh, from what I read about Antiochus IV was he was a very quirky uh, character. Um, he was a master manipulator to the point that actually when Antiochus III died, he wasn't the next in line to take over. Um, I think there was actually a nephew that was next in line. But Antiochus um, was able to push the rightful heir out of the way through political manipulation and self-promotion. Um, he could be super smooth and personable at times, but then at other times he could be completely heavy-handed and tyrannical. It's said that on his coins, he referred to himself as Epiphanes, which was an abbreviation for God manifest or God revealed. Um, in verses 24 through 25, it says, um, His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. So Antiochus IV, mixed with his arrogant view of himself, and then having like multiple run-ins with Rome while he was carrying out his conquests in Egypt, he, he, he took that and kind of took out his anger and flexed on Jerusalem, um, hence turning his eyes on the glorious land, as we saw in verse 9. Um, he not only plundered and desecrated the temple, but he carried out horrific torture and murder against God's people and priests, or as Daniel saw in verse 10, stars that were thrown to the ground. And in verse 24, we see interpreted as mighty men and God's saints. And then he even goes up against God, as we see in verse 25. You know, historically, at one point, um, Antiochus IV, in his horrific reign, sets up an idol and sacrifices to Zeus inside God's holy temple. And this was, this was, I mean, as you can imagine, this was a nightmarish time for the Jewish people. They'd faced oppression before by con conquering rulers, but this persecution was very intentional against them. They were singled out as a focus of this evil one who looked to put himself in the place of God. Now, while other countries had come into the land and taken over, they were mostly looking for land and slaves. But Antiochus came for them specifically, and even more specifically, he came for their God. 
He's actually symbolic of what we've seen carried out against the Jewish people throughout history. And it's no wonder that people have often seen Antiochus IV as a prototype for the Antichrist. And then, as I mentioned before, you know, imagine Daniel seeing all this stuff. Like, yes, there's confusion with what do all these symbols mean. But then imagine as he hears this interpretation, um, the pain and sorrow, recognizing that, you know, here he is in exile, and this vision he's having is, oh, look, we're back in the land. But they're back in the land only to see this horrible, horrible, like, things happening to the people of God. No wonder it says in verse 27 that, that he lay sick for days and was appalled. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, it actually says he didn't even really understand it. It's so horrific a vision that will come to pass that even the heavenly beings, as we read in 13 and 14, it's so hard to watch that one of the heavenly beings who witnesses it, he, he cries out, he says, how long is this going to happen? Like, and that's, that's reminiscent. We see that a lot in the Psalms, like in the Lament Psalms. Um, the psalmist will cry out from their pain and suffering, how long, O Lord? Um, and and this, is, this is the question. He said, how long is the vision concerning the great, um, the regular burnt offering, uh, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled? And notice, um, we get this answer, but notice that the answer is not given to the heavenly being who asked. It's actually given to Daniel. It said, and he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. You know, it's given to Daniel because Daniel was the one who was to relay the message. Um, he also was the one who probably needed to hear something comforting in the midst of this horrible, horrible vision. Um, and so that brings us to this 2,300 evenings and mornings. Uh, we don't really get a, get a good interpretation of this number. Uh, in verse 26, it says, the vision of the evenings and mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. It's not really a, a helpful answer to tell us what 2,300 days are. Um, and so there are, there are generally two schools of thought on this. Um, there was a regular offering for the Jewish people in their temple that was offered twice a day, one in the morning and one in the evening. And because of that, some people view this 2,300 number to specifically mean the sacrifices, which means that it would be uh, two a day, cutting that number then in half, so it's 1,150 days. Um, but then there's other people that see 2,300 as encompassing the two sacrifices. Therefore, it's 2,300 literal days. And if you've done the math here at home, um, 1,150 days comes out to about three years and two months, and 2,300 days comes out to about six years and four months. And guess what? If we try to apply these to the times of Antiochus IV, both of them could actually work depending on where you put them. Um, if you're looking at just when the sacrifices may have been cut off and then restarted, the 1150-day number could work. Um, if you're looking at the time the temple was desecrated to the time that it was re-consecrated, 2300 days works. Now, some, some people sitting here may find uh, issues with that math, and others may even have completely uh, different ideas as to what the number represents. But in the end... This number is not really about the time specifically, but it's an assurance of a limit. There will be an end to this suffering for God's people. Uh, Tremper Longman says about these numbers, their purpose is not for date setting, but for comfort. They remind us that God knows what he's doing. God is sovereign and has set a limit on how long the present evil world will oppress us. These facts should comfort us by reminding us that God is in control of the situation. And so 
with all this said, you know, we, we've now seen, like, this is what this means and this is what this means. I, I think we have this question still of, well, what's the point? Um, when I was in college, uh, between my freshman and sophomore year, um, I had to make a certain amount of money so I could go back to school. And so um, I, my, my uncle worked at a lumberyard in my town, and he said, Dave, I can get you a job at the lumberyard, and you'll make the exact amount of money you need to be able to go back to school. And I said, well, well, that'll be great. But I didn't consider this one simple fact. I do not belong in a lumberyard. Um, I know nothing about lumber. I know nothing about home repair. I am not a handy person. Um, Back then, I was super, super scrawny. Um, it was super hot. It was summer. Uh, and, and also, uh, in my hometown in 1999, when I was working there, um, they were actually having this, like, uh, 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 anniversary special festival of Woodstock. Um, and so Woodstock 99 was happening in my town, and they were building a four-mile wall around it, and they bought all their supplies for the lumberyard I was at. And so every day was kind of a nightmare for me. Like, I would go into work. I had to be there from 7.30 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. every single day. Um, and, and I would go in, and I would just be like, oh, here we go again. And, you know, it was hard work. They wanted you moving fast and carrying all this stuff. Um, and then also, like, people who came into the lumberyard recognized very quickly that I don't belong in a lumberyard and then would treat me as such. Um, and so it's just a really hard time. But you know what got me through that? Uh, I had this cousin who was a teacher, and so he was off for the summer, and so he decided to, to work too. And I honestly think the only reason he did it was just to hang out. So I had someone there, um, so that was helpful. The other thing, though, the biggest thing that helped me get through that, and it's really weird that I remember this specifically, this is how much it meant to me, August 18th, that's it. I was done. I didn't have to work at the lumberyard anymore. Like, I knew that when August 18th came, I no longer had to work at the lumberyard. I'd go back to school and do my thing. Um, and so there was something about knowing that this was temporary and it served a purpose um, that, that kind of pushed me through, helped me to carry on as I went through these, these trials and, and struggles. Um, there was a comfort in the fact that I knew that there was an end to that circumstance. And I could do my job no matter how difficult and frustrating things were because I knew that there was a purpose and that it was temporary. So, so what does Daniel chapter 8 mean for God's people, in particularly in the second century while they're suffering at the hands of Antiochus the, Antiochus IV? You know, it was written by Daniel in the sixth century um, and not only accurately prophesied what happened leading up to the second century, but it was prophesying exactly what the current circumstance was. And while that may not bring immediate salvation from the situation, and it may not even uh, bring all that much clarity as to why it was happening, there had to be some comfort in the fact that this wasn't a surprise to God. Not only is he in control, but he cared enough to tell them in advance and also to assure them that there was an end time. You know, as I mentioned earlier, they may not have known what the 2,300 days may have meant in terms of specific time, but they did know that there was a limit to this atrocity that they were walking through. They knew that it would end and that Antiochus would be brought down. And what proof did they have to believe it? Well, everything that God had said about the ram or Media or Persia came to an end. Uh, what he said about the horns of the goat came to an end, just like he said. Therefore, this annoying horn would be broken, as he stated in verse 25. 
Biblical scholar John Walton says, In the meantime, the Israelites were to live out their faith in a Gentile world under the circumstances that would make it more and more difficult to do so. They had to count on the sovereignty of God sustaining them generation by generation, crisis by crisis. They also had to trust the power of God to control the flow of the world empires as they rose and fell. God's agenda is never in jeopardy. Nevertheless, they were to be prepared for the long term. And so that's, that's what it meant for them, that there is an end. What does it mean for God's people now? Well, while the vision seemed to be specific to the post-exile history of the Jewish people, we as God's people have also been told by God how things are going to be for us. Um, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 states, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Notice he says, Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you, not if. And then in chapter 24 of Matthew, he states, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains, and people will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus does not paint a particularly, you know, comforting, prosperable picture uh, of earthly comfort and prosperity for the believer. He tells us that we will face persecution. He tells us that there will be wars and natural disasters. He tells us that there will be people who show up to lead people astray. And then even people's love will grow cold. But not only does he tell us about these hardships, he then goes and lives it out himself. John 15, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Anything that we may be subject to, Christ went through himself. When we go to him in our suffering, we are not going to a far-off God who doesn't care. But we're going to a God who can empathize with our pain because he himself suffered for us. I don't know about you, but there is something about the God of the universe suffering for me that gives me the hope and strength to press on out of love for him when I'm facing different trials. And then not only did he tell us what to expect in his word, and not only did he live out his example for us, but he also gives us the power to endure these things through his Holy Spirit. He says in John 14, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Having the word of God, the example of Christ, and the power of the Spirit means that we have the means to respond appropriately as we face challenges of this world. Persecution, whether actual or perceived, should not cause us to live into fear 
or, or uh, have us attack those around us or, or even divide us. This doesn't mean that we're complacent when it comes to persecution and injustice. It's just a reminder to live in the hope that we have in Christ as we engage with the culture around us. And as I close, I want to take one final look at Daniel himself. You know, the vision of chapter 8, as I mentioned earlier, it wasn't even really for him. Um, he's given it, but he's told to record it and then seal it up because it was for many days from now what would play out. And while he was made sick and he was appalled and even confused by the vision, notice he carries on with the work that's around him. Uh, in verse uh, 27, um, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for many days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. Um, you know, he, 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 didn't, uh, he went on and carried the work around him. He didn't give up and say, Well, I know this kingdom is going to fail anyway, and things are going to get worse before they get better, so I quit. Um, he didn't look around and say, I'm going to yell at the people about how horrible they are, and God is going to bring judgment on them. That wasn't really the point of this vision. The point of this vision was to bring suffering people hope during their suffering. God had put him in his role at that time in Babylon, and he carried out his calling there. And as we saw in chapters 4 and 5, Daniel doesn't shy away from sharing about judgment or the consequences of sin. But even in that, when he did it, it was a call to repentance, and it was filled with compassion. God has put us in different places in this culture for this specific time. So while we may see wars, natural disasters, and even what seems to be a cultural movement that is blatantly away from God, let us not live in or react out of fear. We have hope in Jesus Christ. We have the promises of his word, and we have the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us rely on God's sovereignty and the good news of the gospel. If you're here this morning and you're hurting and suffering, Christ has hope for you. Whether that means you need to accept his good news of forgiveness of your sins, or if you do know him as Savior, but you've just been bogged down in suffering and pain and you just need to come before him for healing and hope, please do so in prayer. Um, I'll be up here uh, after the, the service here. I would love to pray with you. Um, what's the point of Daniel chapter 8 and all these other passages that we've gotten from Christ? Well, as I said earlier, I, I do think it is, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And so while you walk through whatever you may be walking through, suffering, persecution, or maybe even just the elements of the world around us, don't forget, we have God's word. We have this assurance that he's in control and that these things will, these things were all coming to an end. As we've seen in Revelation, there's a consummation, um, and he is king and he is over all. And don't forget that Jesus himself lived out these examples. He lived it out for us as well. Um, and then also we have his Holy Spirit who gives us the strength to show the love of Christ to those around us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Um, Lord, I do recognize that uh, there's a lot of things swirling around in our world today, and I don't want to come here and, and sound um, glib or uh, unaware of how much pain and sorrow there is. But Lord, I also understand the truth of your word and the truth of, of who you are in Christ and, and the promises that you've given to us and the hope that we have in you. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us here today, we would come to a better understanding of, of that hope, Lord, that we would rest in the hope that we have in you, Lord God. Lord, help us to turn to you. Help us to, to uh, react out of love and to share the love of Christ and the hope that we have in Christ with the people around us. I just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.